Hello, my name is Rachel King, the Program Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this 2020 Word Christchurch Spring Festival podcast, Adventurous Women, proudly presented by Latitude magazine. This year we invited four extraordinary women to tell stories from their adventurous lives and talk about what drives them to take risks in their life and work, featuring Miriam Lancewood, Annabelle Langbein, Kai Oratipini, Selena Tusi-Talamash, and hosted by the wonderful Miriam Kama. Now, you may know the person next to you, you may not know the person next to you, but what you have in common is uh, the adventure, to put it mildly, that we've all been on this year. Uh, now, adventures aren't meant to just be fun, rollicking rides. They are meant to take us into new and sometimes scary spaces. They beat us down and build us up. They teach us. Uh, adventures challenge us to do something unheard of. It's why we waka across oceans, swim channels, run marathons, split atoms, stand up against institutions and hold arts festivals during a pandemic <laughs> in Christchurch. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you have to be uh, adventurous to mount an arts event full stop in New Zealand. A creative spirit is just the beginning. You have to have the curious mind of Susie Wiles, the business brain of Rachel Tolale, the doggedness of Kate Shepard, the financial skills of Diane Foreman, the all-seeing eye of the SIS's <laughs> Rebecca Kittredge, and the res resilience and hope of Fina Cooper. <laughs> to do it during a pandemic in a city that's had more than its fair share of challenges is audacious, brilliant, and adventurous. So thank you, Rachel King and the team, for getting us all here sure together done. tonight. Sure And a big thank you too, of course, Ete Whanau, for this evening. I mean, I love this city, it's my hometown, but boy, has it been testing us all over uh, the last 10 or so years. Uh, but you have shown what it is to weather disaster after disaster and still show up to celebrate. Talk about adventurous and pioneering spirit. Speaking of which, let's go to our first speaker this evening. I think it's pretty fair to say that her entire life is to be an adventurer. She is literally the whole job description. I know a little bit about Miriam Lancewood because we've had her and her husband Peter on the Sunday program. It's, so, you know, if you don't know much about the way that telly works, particularly for Sunday, it's a pretty high bar for getting stories onto the show, and I'll tell you why. We only have one hour a week, and each story is a maximum of 15 minutes long. So the competition for getting a story onto our program is intense. So it says something about Miriam, mm -hmm. that she's been on Sunday not just once, but in fact twice. And each time her story has gone viral around the world. In this increasingly apocalyptic existence we're, enter we're entertaining, Miriam is ready with guns, knives, a backpack... <laughs> and a knack for selling best-selling books, or writing best-selling books about it. Now, when we tuck into bed at night, Miriam is hunkering down with Peter in the back blocks of nowhere with a thin canvas between her and the world. She lives in the wild. Now, this might sound a little fringe, but if it goes all wrong, I want to be with the woman who can wrestle... <laughs> I want to be with the woman that can wrestle a boar to the ground with one hand, shoot and skin a rabbit with the other one, and still look like that. 
she wanted me to say that she's from Holland because she said people will say, where is that strange accent from? <laughs> because, of course, our Kiwi accent is so normal. Tonight, we get to hear about this extraordinary woman's life. She has set a new global bar for adventuring. Please welcome Miriam Lancewood. So, my name is Miriam Lancewood, and I've lived for seven years with my husband in the wilderness of New Zealand. So, we sleep in a tent, we always cook on a fire. We um, move around like nomads all over the country, and we, um, I learned how to hunt with a bow and arrow, and later with a rifle. So in my book, <laughs> <laughs> we might have to use some technology to get to my book. Here's my book. It's called yes. Woman in the Wilderness. And in my book, you can read how we adjusted to living in the mountains, how we um, had to slow down to meet the rhythm of nature. We lived the way our ancestors lived, so we had to touch again those uh, dormant senses. So my senses improved a lot, my sense of smell and a sense of intuition and all that. So you can read how we crossed mountains, how we get through rivers, and how we endured the weather. So after seven years, we left New Zealand and we went to France and we walked 2,000 kilometers through Europe, Bulgaria and Turkey. And every night we find the tallest tree and the branches of the tree is our roof and the moss on the ground is our carpet and the stream nearby is our drinking water and we wash our clothes and we wash ourselves in the river. So... That's our tent <laughs> in the frost. Um, so we feel we live a nomadic life and a very free life. But we don't have security. We don't have a regular income. We don't have um, a group of friends and family that we see regularly. Um, we cannot accumulate possessions. And so it's quite a different life that way. But we feel we live a life of adventure. And that's what we have in common here. Because you wouldn't be here if you didn't feel adventurous at heart, right? All of us feel that we would be capable of um, overcoming some problems, some conflict, enduring some hardship, um, dealing with pain and agony. So an adventure could be a financial adventure, setting up a business, it could be um, an inward journey uh, in a relationship. All that is an adventure, right? And I, of course, walk through the mountains. That's another adventure. So adventure is very broad. So we are willing to overcome these problems, right, in order to have a significant experience, to do something remarkable, right? We want to explore, step into the unknown. We want to... Um, find ourselves and explore the other and the world, right? None of us want to live a mediocre life, right? None of us want to die of boredom and live Groundhog Day, do we? None of us want to be called a sheeple, right? So <laughs> what stops us from having an adventure? First of all, age. 
And when you're over 50, you think, well, now I should settle down and, you know, find some security or whatever. Now, Peter, my husband, you will see him on one of the pictures. He's right there. He's 30 years older than I am. And he started long walking the Tiararoa Trail when he was 62 years old. So let that be a great source of inspiration. So when we're over 50, we're still very, very young. And over 62, it just depends on your you know, mentality. And of course, you are thinking, well, that's easy for him because I'm with him and I carry all the weight. But of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course it's uh, a state of mind, isn't it? Had he not have that state of mind, I would never have been with him, right? So it's all in your mind. You have to have the courage and the mentality to live an adventure. So what stops us from having an adventure? Fear. And over the years, I've been looking at fear. What is fear? And I've discovered the most strangest things about fear. For example, about 10 years ago, you might have read it, we were in Matakitaki in in um, Downey's hut. There's a hundred-year-old hut, and we were stuck there because the rivers had flooded, and we couldn't go, not, we couldn't go anywhere. We are stuck for three and a half weeks because of the rain. When it finally cleared up, it was amazing. The sky was blue, and we saw the mountains for the first time. And I said to Peter, right, I'm off. I'm going to bring the supplies to the next hut. And I walked with my sandals up the mountain, and I found myself in the snow. I thought, oh, I'm totally ill-prepared here. Then I got lost. You might have read the story. Then I fell in a little channel that was like a river, and I got my jumper wet. And then I come to the hut, and the person who, who built the hut was buried right outside. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to spend the night with a ghost. <laughs> it was all very um, scary in a way. But a disaster happened the next morning when it was raining, and I raced back to Peter, and the river was flooded again. And I had to cross the river. It was only five meters, but I stepped in, and the boulders underneath my feet were rolling. And I was really quite um, scared, but, you know, really focused. I put my stick into the current, and I sort of, I imagined being a tree and have my feet right into the ground. Anyway, I made it to the other side. I was quite happy. I sort of, last hour was easy. Come back to Peter. We talk a little bit, have food. Then I went to bed. And only then I started thinking back of what had happened with this river crossing. And then I felt the whole fear coming all in my, in my body. And I thought, hang on a minute. That was four hours ago. How come I'm afraid now? It's one thing to be afraid about the future. Another thing to be afraid about the past, right? And so on. Um, I thought fear is caused, is caused by thought. And so ever since, I've been thinking, wow, well, that's quite strange, isn't it? How, how come thought is causing that? It's not helping, right? Because when you're actually in a very dangerous situation, I feel no fear because I have to deal with all what is in front of me, right? I organized an epic female expedition, and um, in the end, a long story, but in the end, I went with one other female, and we crossed eight mountain ranges, and we kept underneath the glaciers all the time, so we had to cross all those glacier rivers. Um, it took us two and a half months, and the only thing we had was two rifles. So we got very hungry, and we ate a lot of meat, but we survived. But very often, um, we had to cross, you know, very precarious situations, 
and we could fall off and we had to sort of walk on the edge like this. <laughs> and I just deal with the situation and I had no, no fear. So when you're actually in the situation, there doesn't seem to be that much fear. One time, Peter and I were in a city, in Bregenz, in Austria. And we could not find a place to camp. And we were exhausted, and it went on and on and on. And quite late at night, we found finally a little patch of grass. But it was this far from the river and this much above the river. And I pitched a tent, I put out a sleep bag, and I went in and I slept. And later I thought, well, that's weird. The very time you need some fear to, um, you know, help yourself in, in dangerous situation, it's not there. I simply had no energy to be afraid. <laughs> Isn't that strange? So this sort of um, discoveries about fear, um, I find interesting, and I keep learning more and more about it. So back to my question, what stops us from having an adventure? It is also timing. I think timing is really important to get the time. I think everything in life is about timing. Like when you one second too late on the highway, you might have an accident, right? It's all about timing. And I think every, the difference between success and failure is timing. So if you feel like you're ready for an adventure of any kind, I would say do it sooner rather than later, because later might be too late. And when I think about timing, I think about the story that I read about the pygmies in the Congo. They're only small, right? Pygmies, they're only some, like children almost. And the story went, this is real, that the village people nearby came to the pygmies and said, would you mind killing an elephant so we all of us have something to eat? And the pygmy said, yes, but in our own time. What does that mean, in our own time? Does that mean the elephants are coming down and it takes a week to sort of come nearby, so no point going all around? Or do they want to get psychologically ready for the killing an elephant? Now, I mean, it's a big thing, isn't it? So ever since I read this, I thought, what does it mean in our own time? And I thought, are we uh, planning too much in the Western world? Are we... Um, trying to control too much. What is this sense of intuition about the right time? I don't, I'm not really sure about that. So I inquire. And so I now try to plan as little as possible. We have ideas, plenty of them, but we don't want to plan too much because maybe one of you in the audience uh, is planning to sail to Samoa, for example. And they say, Miriam and Peter, would you like to come on my boat? Uh, yeah, sure. And then they said, but we're leaving next week. Right, I'll, be re I'll pack my bag in 35 minutes, and I'm ready. <laughs> that is for me freedom, that I can just pack up and go, if such opportunity comes. Of course, sometimes nothing happens, <laughs> and then we just wait. And then we have you know, other ideas what to do, it doesn't matter. But I want to be free to go. So the last thing that is very important for an adventure is the courage. And sometimes your courage get tested to the max. What happened to us is that we traveled to Australia. Uh, so now two years ago. And Peter fell sick with a stomach bug. And then he got dehydrated. It was in a desert in the Northern Territories. 
And then he started to faint and he had a fever. Luckily, we were close to the hospital, so I brought him into the hospital. Then, this is very bad news, he was very quickly diagnosed with acute kidney failure. And the doctor even spoke about total organ failure. You know, this is really um, very, very serious. It was very uh, traumatic to go through that with the um, emergency situation. He was five weeks in the hospital. In the end, the doctor said, well, you can go home now. Didn't have a home. <laughs> yeah, this is very uncomfortable, of course. And uh, we went to New Zealand. We came back to New Zealand, and luckily we stayed with some friends. And then for the first time in nine years, we had to live in the house. And then, six months later, the specialist said to Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, you now have chronic kidney failure. And this is pretty deadly. He said, you can, I will recommend you to do dialysis and kidney transplant. Um, if you don't, the chance on survival is only 3%. And we looked at all the options. We looked at all the um, um, consequences, all the side effects of dialysis and transplant. And Peter said, no, I'd rather die than live on a machine. And I said, well, you're going to die. And um, he said, yeah, well, so we're all going to die. And so we, we were in that house and... Um, we um, enjoyed every day because it could be his last day. And so time seemed to slow down completely and everything became very intense. And with that intensity, there was a lot of love. And then six months later, he started to recover. And so this is a miracle. And I think he recovered because, you know, a lot of people are afraid to die, myself included. But this takes up a lot of energy. And maybe in Peter's case, because he did not seem to be afraid to die, maybe he used that very energy to recover. Who knows? But let this be a source of inspiration for all of us. Maybe one day we also have to say, I'd rather die than live a life in what feels like a prison. Maybe we can do this. And let this be a spark, a spark of something bright. And so a spark to light your inner fire. And don't ever forget, look after your inner fire. Thank you so much. Miriam, could I ask you just to stand for just a moment? I just want to talk about this, this vest. So this is a vest. <laughs> I admired this. The minute she turned up, she was like, should I wear this? And I was like, you've got to wear that. <laughs> Miriam made this vest. She didn't just make it. She shot the rabbit. She skinned the rabbit. She found the possum. That's the possum. She yeah. shot, shot, shot the possum. The skinned the possum. Tell us about this vest. So this is rabbit. You see the difference, right? Rabbit and possum. Yeah, and I've got the skins, and I've got plenty of time. We, um, <laughs> I have a little, um, you know, sewing kit, and I'll put that on a jacket. So, it's actually to a sight. <laughs> it has a surprise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. <laughs> what a woman. Hand sewed it as well. Incredible. One of the things that I loved about uh, the first story that we had on Sunday with Miriam, and she, you know, she and Peter talked about the fact that he's uh, older than her, and our reporter Mark Chrysler said, well, what will happen when he becomes too old to, to be able to travel with you um, if he becomes too frail? And she said, I will carry him. I'll carry him. That's what I did too. <laughs> She's an incredible woman. Crocodile Dundee is Australia's answer to Miriam Lanceford. Ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause. So one of the things that I talk about a lot to uh, women, I give talks on this, and, and, uh, and I always hope that there are men there as well because I think it's really important. Um, I talk about this thing that I call the four M's, and they're the M's that we don't want to talk about, but I think that we need to talk about, and they are menstruation, miscarriage, motherhood, and menopause. So too often, I believe, you know, we talk about them, quietly and with a respectful reserve, or we'll laugh about them with ribald humor. We treat these four M's as either a joke or taboo, but they aren't. They're sacred, but they're not taboo. These four M's are the stuff of life. We are all of them, nothing, all of us rather, nothing without them. So I reckon we need to talk about them, celebrate them even, and include our kids and me in the discussion around, uh, around them. So it was with the, with the greatest of gratitude that I read an article from our next speaker, Annabelle Langbein, who spoke to life after 50. She said, I always thought menopause was going to be the end of the earth, but it is so not. It's the opposite. You have this incredible energy and you can still feel sexy and fabulous. But there is this freedom that comes with it. Yes, sister. <laughs> yes, thank Yay. you very much. Annabelle. Annabelle is an example of Miriam uh, saying that, you know, life does not finish at 50. Uh, and frankly, if there is a woman that is qualified to speak to the adventuring of womanhood, it is Annabelle Langbein. Uh, three television series, 27 books, a businesswoman, mother and wife, and the creator of the cake that features in nearly every single family event <laughs> in my house, literally called the best ever banana cake. I am thrilled to present to you Annabelle Langbein. Well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction, and I feel very honoured to be in this group of amazing, adventurous women. Um, I'm going to talk to you tonight on quite a different tangent, because I think lots of you know me from the TV series and this, you know, like probably quite tidy person who turns up and you really don't know too much about the backstory of my life. Um, and the backstory of my life... Um, I left home when I was 16, much to my um, parents' horror, and uh, I moved up the Wanganui River with my lovely boyfriend, who was extremely idealistic, and we became Maoist hippies. <laughs> and he was very fervently sharp-horned to the left, and I just adored him, so I was following. And we cooked over a fire, we didn't have any electricity, um, we lived, hunted, shot, fished, 
And I remember coming back one weekend. I was still at, at school, actually, when the first weekend I went up to Ranana. And I came home. And I haven't written this in the book, but I came home and I was covered in impetago sores, maybe 30 of them on my face. And if my mother could have put me in the boot of the car, <laughs> she would have. And we went straight to the doctor. Anyway, that didn't put me off. I stayed up the river. And then along with six other people, actually seven other people, we built this 52-foot catamaran. And um, the other people that were on the boat were my boyfriend's um, sister, two sisters and their two partners and two other friends and a cat and a baby. And we left um, Wellington on the night of a storm warning um, and we came around Cape Palliser and I remember I was not on the first watch and I hadn't latched the, um, you know, the portholes properly and this huge shuddering wave hit the side of the boat and so I started getting all my possessions together because we'd we were packed to go off around the world, and we were going to stop in Gisborne to go possum trapping on the way, as you do. And uh, the next wave, um, you know, boof, hit this boat. And because it was, it was a 52-foot cat, and it had a, um, both hulls were joined with these, um, you know, big beams that were on, um, you know, large, when you have a screw, I'm not really a plumber, so I don't know, but, you know, these sort of buffering rubber things. Anyway, the rubber things jutted a lot, and I threw up all over all my possessions and the pool of water that was now in my cabin because I hadn't shut the, the porthole and all the rave came through. So that was the beginning of 10 days of sheer horror. And I wanted, you know, I went from sort of wanting to die to thinking I was dead to wishing I was dead. <laughs> and when I got off that boat... Um, I didn't actually want to see any of those intellectual people ever again in my life, <laughs> even my very nice boyfriend. So when this incredibly good-looking, loose guy came down the wharf in a black cable jersey and some fishing boots and lanky blonde hair and blue eyes and said that we looked like we might have needed a shower and put us all in his Thames Trader um, van and took us to his house, which had once been a... Um, uh, milking shed, and he had painted the most vile green and bilious purple and had a velvet picture on the wall that wasn't a picture, it was one of those Tahitian maidens. <laughs> I moved in four days later. <laughs> and uh, so this is the boat that we built. I haven't really got very many slides, but it was a huge mission. I built the cockpit all by myself and did a hell of a lot of sanding. So this new boyfriend of mine um, was 10 years older than me, and there were quite a few um, not particularly attributes I would call that he had, um, but it was a very short amount of time. I was living in the bush. Um, I had a 185cc motorbike. I was hunting, shooting, fishing, and I just loved the freedom. I just loved the freedom of this life. It was fantastic. And um, like Miriam, we lived actually, in, we just lived off the land I used to take a sack of rice and we'd hunt deer. I never ate possums. I bought my first house when I was 20 from the money I made possum trapping and doing live deer recovery. I was the jumper. Um, and as a result of that, I now need a new knee and a new hip. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing about this guy was he was a real adventurer, but he was also a big drinker. <laughs> And we used to come to town now and then, and he'd always come to town when it was duck shooting time. And um, so we'd, we'd be in town, and 
we, I got really good at shooting skeet. And so we'd go to the gun club on a Sunday, and we hadn't been dating for very long at this point. I'd had my first trip into the bush, and um, we'd come out, and we were, we were off to the gun club. Anyway, been a lot of drinking going on on this particular afternoon, and I've called him Luke. He's actually not around anymore, but he did have another name. I've changed most of the names in this book. <laughs> my publishers suggested that legally it was a very good idea. <laughs> anyway... Luke had been doing a lot of drinking, and I was driving him home, and he sort of just grabbed the steering wheel, you know, like this, stop. And he got out of the car, and he threw up, and his teeth came out. <laughs> and, you know, like, I didn't even know anyone with false teeth at that stage of life. And I tell you what, he did not look quite so good without those curly whites, but as they say, love is blind. So we... Um, we lived in the bush, and then we, we came home, and I used to, you know, this is the shed, lots of guns. I used to make crayfish pots. And actually, it was quite, for me, quite a lonely life in a way because I'm naturally quite a sociable, gregarious person, and I didn't know anyone else. I'd left all those people that I'd been on the boat with. I'd checked up with this guy. I stayed with him for two and a half years. And in this time, this is when I really turned to cooking, and I discovered Julia Child. And I'd make these lobster pots, and I'd go and put them out, and I'd get my crayfish, and I'd go to Julia, and it was like, here's how you make the lobster thermidor. And if any of you have made that recipe out of Julia's Mastering the Art of French Cookery, it's in about nine-point font, and it goes on for about five pages, and there's about a 1,000 calories in it. But I was there with her, and she was a very reassuring and comforting presence in my life. And... Um, I guess at that stage of my life, I really didn't have any fear. And it's interesting because one of the things that does happen when you have children is suddenly you get fearful. It's a bizarre thing. I don't know if you other women have felt this, but it was sort of not annoying, but it's instinctual, I think, because your, your role is to be there and to protect people and to make sure that everybody um, comes out alive, actually, I think. <laughs> um, so, yes, this is me in the Mai Mai shooting. And actually, when I... Um, um, the man who I ended up marrying, there's a lovely story about this, and there's a whole um, uh, chapter devoted to the man who I married because it's been a long, ongoing love affair since I was 18. And with lots of interludes, I might say. We didn't get married until I was about 28. <laughs> um, but uh, the first time he took me shooting, it was really funny. He didn't know I was a good shot because I hadn't really told him about this stage of my life. <laughs> And he said, I'll go first. <laughs> and he went, boof, boof, and, I, and nothing happened. And I went, boof, boof, and landed two ducks. <laughs> Hasn't taken me shooting since. Um, but the fantastic story, because my favourite word in the English language is serendipity. And I do think in life, um, so many of the things that you said, Miriam, are, are just so true about um, sort of finding time and place and, and the right time in life. But when I met um, Ted, he never actually saw me. And some of you may have heard this story before, but um, I was, I'd split up from the man with no teeth. <laughs> Finally, took quite a while. <laughs> Um, but I was still possum trapping, and I, I, I was living up in the bush sometimes, and other times I was managing a vineyard down in Gisborne. And I was working this bit of river that looked like a really nice, easy bit of river, so I had my traps. Most days I'd do maybe 25 kilometres, and, you know, it was a, I was so fit then. 
Um, anyway, I heard a horse coming and I thought, hmm, perhaps I'm not supposed to be here. So I climbed up this puri tree and this guy stopped right underneath my tree. And I don't know if I can do it like this, but my heart, no, it's not turned on, but it was just going so loud like this. I thought he would have heard it. That's how fast and hard my heart was going. And he just stayed under me from the tree and he was going, oh, bloody possum trappers. <laughs> After a while, I peeked down and he was so good looking, I nearly fell out of the tree. <laughs> but I dislocate badly. <laughs> and it wasn't going to be like water for chocolate where they ride off on the white horse into the blue horizon. I knew it was going to end badly. So he never saw me. And after about half an hour, he left, and then I waited another hour, and I got down out of that tree. I picked up the few traps I had left, and I never went trapping again. And the next Friday, I thought, I need to get back into civilization again, you know. So I basically got a frock, put some lipstick on, and went to the pub. And every small town in New Zealand used to have a pub where the, all the cockies would go, all the farmers would go. So I turned up at the Masonic Hotel in Gisborne, and I started asking people, you know, did anyone know anyone who had a flat? And um, these two girls' names kept coming up, and they were cousins, and they had a flat in Hospital Road. So I was really nervous going for my flat interview. You know, I'd been, I'd been living outside of society for a really long time. And I turned up, and they straight away just said, move in, come now, stay tonight. You know, I was on my, my motorbike, and I had the Thames Trader van that I'd got from the ex-boyfriend who'd gone bankrupt and I'd had to do the whole, you know, as you do. Anyway, so all these maps, all these maps on the wall of this flat of farms and I thought, well, I know all that territory but that's my old life, I'm not going to say anything about that. And one of the girls was about six foot three and the other one was maybe five foot and they were just so funny. You'd wake up in the morning and think all your ribs were broken because you'd laugh so much. And one day in the weekend, this incredibly tall, skinny guy turned up, and he was there to see his sister, who was the tall one. And I thought, I know you, but you don't know me. <laughs> and he was the guy that had been under my tree, and he is the guy that I married. <laughs> so... So there's lots more stories. I could take you on lots of adventures. I feel incredibly lucky to um, have had the life I've had. And the thing about life is it isn't all peaches and cream. There'll be hard balls that come so hard and fast and hit you that you just don't know where they've come from. And you don't know if you'll survive them. And my mother taught me this thing that you just literally have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep going. And then you'll find yourself in another place. And this is what life is. So enjoy every minute of it because it can be a hell of a roller coaster of a ride. Thank you. Life would never be just peaches and cream at your house, anyway, would it? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause, please, for the inimitable Annabelle Langby. So Kaiora Tipene is at the frontier of the great adventure we must all take. There's no escaping it. And perhaps because there's no escaping it, we try to give, not give it rather, the power that it actually has. The interesting thing about this must-do journey is the reluctance we all have to put into words what it, what it is. 
We skirt around it. We call it things like the great unknown or behind the veil, the other side. And we follow the light, depart this mortal coil, go to the great creator in the sky. But it is what it is, death. And Kaiora Tsipene is a guide. She has helped normalize the normal in this country and beyond. As a funeral director, Kaiora makes what is unbearable as bearable as she can for grieving whānau and friends. And in her inimitable and courageous way, she has made real and accessible what too many of us don't want to know about through her wildly popular Netflix show, The Casketeers. Now, any time I have ever encountered Kaiora, it's in an extraordinary capacity. The last time was when she was speaking about miscarriage. And of course, that's one of my four M's. And she was trying to help normalize what is too often not spoken of. Kaiora is an adventurer, a mum of five boys, six, she says, if you include her husband. <laughs> she is a navigator of the human heart. No mai, et te mare kura. Please welcome Kaiora Tipene. Wow, honestly. Truly, I am te honore hokinoku ki te tuimui i o koutou i tēnei po. I'm very honoured to stand before you today amongst such mana wahine. And, you know, leading up to this event, I am, I'm a little bit busy in my own sort of world, that I, I didn't really pay attention to what I, was, I said yes to. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then um, I get a text from my husband the other day, and he says, oh, aren't you going to Christchurch sometime this week? And yesterday, I was like, oh my goodness, that's tomorrow. <laughs> And I actually told Miriamma today, yeah, I, I, I just remembered yesterday I had to come here. <laughs> so on my arrival, I get this pack and I'm reading through my itinerary and it says, please give a 15-minute talk. So, oh, so you're not just introducing yourself, you actually got to give a talk to everybody. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, Fano, my name is Kaiora Tipine and I was raised in the far north. 
And it all started two hours southwest of Kaitaia in a valley called Puapua. I come from a family of 12, six girls and six boys, and trust me, it was quite normal back in them days to be in the double digits of those whanau. <laughs> now, <clears throat> my, uh, I'd probably say the first eight of my siblings were raised in this valley called Puapua. It's on the other side of a hill out of um, Pauringa, if you ever go there, it's a beautiful Hokianga. And in order to get to this valley, you uh, could drive so far that you needed either a quad bike, a horse, or just walk to get there. And much like these beautiful wahine, my siblings were raised out in the wild, and you had to pretty much go and fetch your own water if you wanted a warm bath. You had to heat it up on the fire. Um, we, my, my dad didn't have a, a tent, of course. He wasn't going to raise us in, in a tent. He built his own, his own house. And lucky for us, it was pretty stable. Um, uh, my mother raised us all, uh, the first eight of our siblings, my siblings there. And it was there where I learned my humble beginnings. But he, he got a visitor from one of the local um, teachers who informed him that, Mr Murray, you need to start sending your children to school and they actually need to be attending every day. He would do his best to send them, but uh, to get to our home, you, you needed to get your own horse. Um, and if, He had about 24 horses. If you caught one of them, it was yours. <laughs> <laughs> and that you had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, go fetch your horse, come back, give it some water, feed it, and you would have to ride about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes to get to the vehicle, and then he would drive you to your local kura, to your local school. Now, of course, he wasn't going to do that every day, but when he got a visitor this particular time, it was quite serious. So he then packed up his whanau, we moved to Kaitaia, and at this point, we weren't fighting over candles. There was electricity, you could just turn it on. So we were grateful for those humble beginnings. But our home out in Puapua later became our holiday home. And so when we want to uh, revitalize, I guess, ourselves, rejuvenate, we go back there where we find a bit of comfort and reminisce on those um, humble beginnings. So moving forward, I moved to Auckland met my lovely darling, who's a bit of a character, by the way, <laughs> and have five children. We met at, a, at a, a teacher's training college at a place called Te Wananga Takiura, where it's total immersion reo Māori. We didn't quite see that through because we had a baby. Moved to Kaitaia, where we were educators. He was an educator for a place known as Te Oranga and I was teaching at a kohanga. I was quite comfortable at the time. I was. I was raising my son there. He was learning te reo Māori and, you know, learning a bit of tikanga up home. And then one day my husband comes back and he says, oh, hey, uh, babe, guess what? And I said, oh, yeah, here we go. Um, what's up? <laughs> I've been thinking and I really, I think it's time we start our own business. Said, oh, all right, cool. And I'm hanging up the clothes and going, oh, he's going through this man thing, no problem. <laughs> he goes, oh, I said, what's your business? 
goes, oh, I want to own a funeral home. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm struggling to put the pig in the line now. <laughs> oh, okay, right. And how do you propose we do this? Well, I've already got a job in Auckland. In Auckland? Why are we going back there? Because he said, yes, and the local man over here doesn't want me to start up a business, so he said no. Oh, okay. So, and he said, guess what? I've even got your job. Oh. <laughs> so he was quite serious. He didn't give me a job at the funeral home, no. But I managed to um, teach at a Kurukaupapa school known as Piripuno in Ōtara. So he, he, was, he was serious, you know. He got me a job. That was fine. Two weeks later, we moved to Auckland. He then um, had some experience in the funeral industry. Uh, he was with that funeral home for about three months, and then he moved on to another funeral home known as Ngahui Fa in Pamua. And it was there where he um, was able to learn a lot about the industry, learn a lot about the processes. And then he was able to... Uh, I, what I found when he was there is that he became, it became really consuming, where he was, the, uh, he was the only employee at the time. His boss fell sick, and he then needed to operate this funeral home on his own. And, I, of course, I wasn't seeing my husband. And it was probably a week before I saw him because this job required you to be there all the time. You couldn't just say no to families. You couldn't turn them down because you can hear their tonguey. You can hear their pody. They need help. They need you straight away. And he doesn't have that ability to say no to people, especially in that grief. So he then needed my help. He said, babe, are you ready to join me in this? I need some upfi. And of course, I was like, oh, without hesitation, I went to assist him. We had two boys at the time and that required them to come to Mahi with us, my two-year-old and an eight-month-old at the time. So I couldn't, I had no funds to put my boys in daycare. I didn't find that the assistance from the government at the time was enough to put them in daycare. So they had to come to Mahi with us. And it was good. You know, they were exposed to learning about the funeral industry our funeral processes. Um, <laughs> it was a different education for them. <laughs> yeah. So at first, of course, I was um, sort of taken back by what I seen. And he, him thinking, you know, he's already been in this line of work for a few months now. He's used to it. And me coming in for the first time, he's like, oh, babe, I just need you to go and get Mrs. So-and-so over there. Could you just transfer her over here? And I'm like, where is she? <laughs> oh, she's over there. Look, just, just transfer her. Come on, quick. I need you to come in here while I bring Mr. So-and-so out there. I'm going, oh, okay. So I'm looking around, you know, walking around. And then I see this lovely bed and they had a sheet on. I said, is that her there? <laughs> and he goes, oh. Don't be rude. Yes, go on, go talk to her and bring her over here with us. I'm, and I'm, okay, all right. But I had to quickly get over there because he needed help. He needed someone to assist him through this. So 
I've managed to overcome that fear when you saw the whānau for the first time and they see their loved one in their resting bed. And they turn around and they say to you, oh my gosh, my mum looks so amazing. Thank you so much. It was then I realised, actually, thank you for allowing me to care for your loved one. It became a blessing. It became, um, it then became something that I loved and I really loved it. So I have to acknowledge my husband for that. Now what became really adventurous in my life was actually agreeing to being filmed. <laughs> and look, the idea came from her name is Annabelle Lee Harris. She's a producer for the Hui now, and she was working for Māori Television at the time. And she says, hey, girl, what about we follow you and your mahi and we film you doing this? I was like, hey? <laughs> really? And she goes, yeah, it'll be Katapai. <laughs> I was like, who are you following, though? Me or them or what? She goes, Everything. Oh, okay, all right, no problem. And at first I thought, oh, oh, it should be fine. It should be okay, it's TV. Wow, let's do this. Then I went to go home and told my husband, I said, guess what? <laughs> Annabelle's come back with this idea, do you like it? No. <laughs> it was a straight no from him. I was going, oh, okay. So I left it and I thought, oh, this is maybe a couple of days' time. Hey, hun, well, you know that idea I told you about? Yes. It's a still no. Oh, but what about if we changed it, like, so that they just follow you and I? Well, I didn't really understand why he said no at first. But it was about um, his view in respecting our loved ones. His view in respecting their whānau and their grief. And even still, we are like that. Um, but what changed our minds what was seeing how uh, social media has become really powerful in getting tangi out there. And the amount of our own whānau sharing photos and even being seen on the news where you watch caskets being taken out of their whare or even onto the marae. So that's what changed us. It was like, okay, if they can show it that way, maybe we can educate our people this other way. And I have to acknowledge our, our film crew because before it went on air, oh, wow, we see these ads, you see, you know, the first dad that comes on and he says a line like this, you know, let's not confuse with how much I love my wife to how much I, you know, don't like working with her. <laughs> and I... <sighs> my mouth was just like, really? <laughs> you know, I had nothing but nice things to say about you. So when they film us, they take us to this room, and it's kind of like therapy, you know? 
They ask you these questions and you let it out. <laughs> so after seeing the first season, I said to him, oh, I'm not holding back now. <laughs> so I have to really acknowledge our the producer and the director, with how they articulated our series. Because trying to portray something like that and ensuring that it's going to be appealing to our people, to Aotearoa and to the world, they've done it in such a respectful way that I can't mihi to them enough. I also can't mihi enough to our whānau who have agreed to share their mamai with the world. They have opened up so much, and I'm in debt to them. And so why I feel that this has been such an adventurous moment for us is because we have managed to break so many barriers in our industry. In fact, for everyone. Because yes, Miriam is right. At some point in time, we really don't want to talk about this. <laughs> but we have to. And if there's one thing that I can leave tonight, oh my goodness, it'll be um, if you've been married four times, you might want to get a will. <laughs> oh. Because we are not just the funeral director at the end of the day. <laughs> we become a counsellor, policeman, uh, you know, the works. And so that all these families, when they come together in one room, and then they say, no, oh my goodness, you're wearing the watch that I bought him, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you sit there and you're like, oh, okay. I just want to get the paperwork done. <laughs> just to conclude, Vano, I, I look, I am truly grateful for the mahi that I have. And for the wonderful husband that I have who does lead our Fano, our Mahi, and everything that we do. Now we don't force karakia on people when they come to our funeral home, no. We offer it to Fano, and sometimes it does feel a little bit incomplete when there hasn't been a little ceremonial process before you leave us and you take your loved one home. We do offer that to Fano. Um, but look, he's a wonderful husband. <laughs> a typical morning, if I can share this very quickly. Okay, I've got five boys, six, including the husband, as she says. In the morning, oh, I get up, do the baby, you know, you potter around the house, you quickly clean up a little bit, you get the breakfast ready, you get your kids' lunches ready, and you feed the kids, you get them ready for school, you finally have a little cup of tea for yourself. Then you walk into the shower ready to get yourself ready, right? But out walks your husband. <laughs> and oh my gosh, he's looking amazing. You know, the hair's back, the suit's on. And, he come, and you're looking, you're marveling at him, and he comes and looks at you like. 
โอ้โอ It is just you know it's, there's no words expressed during this time. He's looking at you like, "What have you done all morning, girl?" And all you do is you go, you hear the baby cry. Hey, all you do is you go. And that's him. He looks at all the kids. You see them all ready. That's all you have to do. And so you're walking past him like this, and he's done like this. And that's your cue to just get in that shower and take your time. Hoia no te fano, kanui te nei, moku mo te nei wanga mi aroha kia koto. The wisdom of wills and how to handle husbands. Thank you very much, Kaiora Tipini. Another round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Now, adventuring is really putting into action the words "I dare to." Selina Tusitala Marsh dares to. In the world of words, she's a pioneering poet. Writing roughshod over tricky turns of phrase, wrestling, cajoling, shaping, and moulding the intangible into something real, something soulful, something relatable, something powerful. One of my uh, favourite quotes of all time comes from a woman who dared to do well despite her apparent timidity. In fact, at her heart, Janet Frame was a lion. Consider her words about writing. I absolutely love this. A writer must stand on the rock of herself and her judgment. Or be swept away by the tide, or sink in the quaking earth. There must be an inviolate place where the choices and decisions, however imperfect, are the writer's own. Where the decision must be as individual and solitary as birth or death. In other words, you must be brave. You must be sure-footed. And that is why Selina Tusi Talamash keeps winning in the rocky wilderness of words. Her latest graphic novel, Mophead, is mopping up literary prizes everywhere. Generally, as I said to her earlier, I- I'm not going to name your accomp- accomplishments because they are just blooming far too long. The list is endless. Selina dares to be a poet, a writer, a proud Pacifica woman, a mother, a runner, a mophead, an adventurer of the written word. She is our fast-talking, best-selling, glittering Pacifica poet laureate. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Selina Tusitalamash. Kia ora koutou, my loyal soi fua. Can I? Borrow that for the blurb of the next book because that's, <laughs> that's stunning. Thank you. And you know the 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 joy of being the final speaker and mopping up everyone else's thoughts is that I get to acknowledge each of you. But I actually 
only have 15 minutes, I'm just going to do it kind of sideways So Miriam talked about living in the wild with her husband, Peter, for seven years. I have lived in the wild with my husband for 25 years, and we haven't even left the house. (laughs) And Miriamma spoke about the four M's, and Annabelle's mentioned menopause, and I too have entered that because it is men on pause. (laughs) My three sons... My husband, I FaceTimed him tonight. He was like, uh, are you going to cover up? And I'm like, absolutely. I got gold glitter all over me. <laughs> Men on pause. Yeah. Um, adventure, definition, an unusual, daring, exciting experience. Adventure. Definition, engaging in a daring, risking, risky activity. So I could have told you about the time I took the New Zealand Poet Laureate Toko Toko, or carved Māori walking stick, up the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and got sprung by security who were going to arrest me except my fellow writers who were with me at the Dubai Literary Festival then told him that I was the guest of the Crown Prince, who was the sponsor of the Dubai Literary Festival and had us all shunted out into the private elevator and exiting the Burj Khalifa. So it was either that or jail, and we made the Writers' Festival. I could have told you about that. (laughs) I could have told you about the time I stood with the Toko Toko in the wings before the photo, the official photo with Barack Obama. And I had a blue-suited security guard see me from across the hall and suddenly see the um, potential weapon I was holding and speak into his Bluetooth speaker phone. And then three other guys came out and they started walking towards me but not before the photographer cued me to go on and I'm running up there and saying, Hi, Barry. It's Sal. I know who you are. We need the arts. We need poetry especially. Thanks, Barry. I didn't call him Barry. I called him Obama. I could have told you about that experience. I could have told you how I snuck my way in with the Sky Tower maintenance crew for their last cleanup before these big antennae went to the very top of the lightning rod, and we managed to abseil up the lightning rod, except um, my girlfriend got her Ropes tangled, maintenance crew had to go down, and I was stuck up there for 29 minutes when the wind picked up. And that lightning rod, like, you know, when you're down there, it it looks perfectly still. It's not. (laughs) That was an adventure. I could have told you about my very first ever marathon 
that my, um, the leader of Waiheke Trail Tribe, Sarah Gloyer, decided would be the Queenstown shot over Moonlight Marathon, which qualifies as an ultra because it is two and a half thousand meters elevated throughout the whole course. But I said yes, because I was running to get to the end of myself because I had a big decision to make. And what I found out over that 42 kilometers of mountain range was that I'm a, a lot stronger than I thought I was and I didn't break. And that was the lesson that running was and is my moving meditation. And there's no time, there's no certificate at the end. No one even knows you finish. I don't think you do finish. But what I found out was, yeah, I'm a hella stronger than I thought I was. And laughter and humor are one of my superpowers. What I want to share with you tonight is a really quiet adventure, a really still moment where I had to be daring and I took a big risk. And it turned out to be, well, it's when I went and had a meeting with Sam Alworthy, who is head of Auckland University Press. And it was the end of my two-year tenure as New Zealand Poet Laureate. And I'd written a 60,000 memoir, a poetic meditation on each of those 11 pieces that comprises my toko toko. And I was so pleased and so uh, proud to do this, my first kind of writing in this area. And I did a lot of poetry and a lot of academic writing. And Sam loved it. And then I stood up to leave his office and I crossed through the doorway. And I was suddenly hit by this Rumi poem. The Rumi poem that has anchored me for the last two years. And it goes out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there, where the soul lies down in the long grass and the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other makes no sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Do not go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Do not go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Do not go back to sleep. And I was about to leave Sam's office and I turned around and I said, hey, there's this really crazy, wacky, silly thing I've been doing, but do you want to see it? And he's like, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's just really rough, but um, 
there's a character that I've used to tell the story of the New Zealand poet laureateship because I think the average New Zealander needs to know that we've got this phenomenal award and kids need to know it so they can aspire to it. And um, I started telling the laureate story for kids and out came the story about having too big hair and being teased and labelled a mop head. And, um, and that was the name that I was bullied with at primary school. And it was one of those names that haunted me through primary school, intermediate and even college. And so Sam was like, well, sit down. And I showed him the complete storyboard of Mophead, really rough drawings. And he kind of grabbed his heart and he was like, uh, I think this is kind of capturing the zeitgeist of our nation at the moment. Look at all these powerful women in Aotearoa doing powerful things in their own bespoke way. So let's set aside the written memoir and let's give Mop here to go. And I just, you know, I just, that was an adventure. That was my big risk, right? I've always drawn, I've always doodled. I would never deign to call myself an artist and yet, last week, Mophead picked up Book Design of the Year at the Publishers Association of New Zealand. And I don't know if you heard about it, but I was so shocked and surprised, and I was having wine at the back, that I bunny hopped all the way to the stage, <laughs> and people watched me and my hair. Like, <laughs> so, and I heard someone go, she's an author. <laughs> I'm like... I'm an illustrator too. <laughs> so she's completely taken me by storm um, and she continues to tell my truth. She's a memoir. Her sister's coming out in a few weeks' time, Mophead 2, um, spelt T-U, whereas Mophead was about how, how your difference makes a difference. Mophead 2 is all about how where you stand matters. And it's how she both kept and broke the rules that the Queen issued for her poem that I delivered um, as Commonwealth poet. So we've all got access to those inner adventures, right? We've all got access to the dawn breeze, and what's been very difficult for me as mother, as wife, as sister-in-law is to actually ask for what I really want. And Mophead was what I really wanted. And um, I get to share her with you. So the door is round and open, and the dawn breezes have secrets to tell you. Do not go back to sleep. Thank you.
Oh, I feel a little bit emotional now. Thank you, Selena. (laughs) Do not go back to sleep. I love this. Um, What an absolute privilege and pleasure and honor it has been to run this evening and to be able to present each of you women to this um, receptive and gorgeous audience. Thank you, uh, the four of you, and thank you to everyone for being here. Let's just go over quickly what we've heard tonight. Um, We heard about adventuring and what that is, that the recipe lies in rejecting age and fear and embracing timing and courage. We heard less about cooking from Annabelle Langbein and more about hunting and shooting and fishing and boat building, the joys of hippie love and false teeth, (laughs) and then true love. We heard about defying the fear of death, saying yes to life's challenges and the wisdom of wills and how to handle ornery husbands. And we heard how to reimagine menopause, men on pause, men on pause. My husband will be going, oh, so is that what's going on? <laughs> okay, got it, got it. How to claim and reclaim who we are, and that when you forget your makeup, as Selena did this evening, you can just put on glitter, and it's all good. <laughs> We've all got access to the dawn breeze, she says, so let's be courageous to ask for what we really need and not go back to sleep. Selena spoke of lightning rods, and that is what these women are, lightning rods for change, for daring do, for living on the edge, for just simply living. That's what these women embody. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for our women.